My name is Dominic Carter. My leadership lesson is to be the role model for constant change in your organisation. Hello and welcome to Management Today's Leadership Lessons podcast. I'm Kate McGee, the editor of Management Today. And I'm Antonia Garrett-Peel, senior staff writer at Management Today. In this episode, we speak to Dominic Carter, who was named EVP Publisher of The Sun last year. Carter held a number of senior commercial roles at the brand's owner News UK prior to his most recent appointment, including Group Chief Commercial Officer. Early on in his career, he was the first person of colour to become a display advertising executive on a British national newspaper, and his work more recently in driving News UK's diversity and inclusion agenda earned him the title of Social Mobility Champion of the Year in the 2021 Social Mobility Awards. In quite a wide-ranging conversation, we touched on how the sun defines itself, its relationship with controversy, the impact of AI on the media industry, and the debate around office versus remote working. This interview was, however, recorded before the news broke of Rupert Murdoch's intentions to hand the reins of his media empire to his son Lachlan. The sun is, of course, part of this empire, which Rupert built over the course of a remarkable and, for many, controversial 70-year career. The succession story within the Murdoch family has, for obvious reasons, inspired an immense amount of interest, and no doubt a lot of that scrutiny now will be focused on Lachlan's leadership as it unfolds. Now on to the other stories from this week. The single greatest reallocation of capital and labour since the Industrial Revolution is required to meet net zero by 2050, but British businesses are already falling behind. At least that's what Paul Simpson discovers in one of our latest features. The piece says that despite catastrophic wildfires on Maui in Hawaii, record-breaking temperatures of 52.2 Celsius in China, and the worst drought in 70 years in the Horn of Africa, governments across the world seem to be pulling back on some of their green pledges. For example, in the US, 25 states are debating bills to restrict ESG business practices, making it harder, European insurers say, for them to collectively combat climate change. UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has already granted hundreds of North Sea drilling licences, which prompted Guy Hands, who retired as a chairman of British private equity firm Terra Firma in July, to criticise the government's record, saying, Ignorance is not bliss when the world is on fire. Last week, Sunak cancelled a series of key green policies, notably delaying a ban on the sale of new petrol and diesel cars from 2030 to 2035 and phasing out gas boilers. It's been widely condemned by businesses, particularly the car manufacturers who have been rapidly changing their businesses to meet that 2030 target. Lisa Brankin, who is the chair of Ford UK, said on Wednesday morning, our business needs three things from the UK government, ambition, commitment and consistency. A relaxation of 2030 would undermine all three. While Chris Norbury, who's the chief exec of um, the energy supplier E.ON, said, We risk condemning people to many more years of living in cold and drafty homes that are expensive to heat in cities clogged with dirty air from fossil fuels, missing out on the regeneration that this, I assume he's referring to net zero by 2050 here, ambition brings. In Paul's piece, he spoke to Matt Illick, who's the CEO of the edtech startup Greenworks and a former policy advisor to Theresa May, who's particularly concerned about the fact that the green workforce that is needed to meet the net zero target does not exist and is not being trained. In his view, businesses have to collectively take the lead by campaigning loudly and consistency for the government to be more flexible about how funding for training and skills development is allocated. 
And at present, he says barely one in a thousand skilled manual workers is relocating into green jobs. And he gave an example, which he said to achieve net zero, we as a country need to install 1,600 heat pumps every day for most of the next decade. And for that, we've got to train at least 4,000 heat pump installers every year between now and 2030. Although perhaps that's now changed with a sort of slightly delayed target. However, to put that in context, we don't even have 4,000 installers now. So this is it's quite an interesting story, I think, here that, you know, lots of companies and lots of governments have all signed up to this net zero pledge. And yet, as soon as it starts getting difficult, it feels like people are already stepping back and saying, ah, well, actually. Yeah, I mean, I think Rishi Sunak said that we were on track and he didn't want to ask British people to do more than they needed to do. But sort of the rebuke that he got from the car industry about that, that they'd kind of laid all of this groundwork and then the sort of policy was being changed overnight kind of feeds into that whole thing about the green job skills gap that is kind of meaningless to have these targets unless that groundwork's being laid so it's almost a sort of opposite example in a way. Mm, I think that's a good point and really the intricacies of how we get to net zero can be debated but I think the key thing for businesses is having consistency and we saw that, you know, we suffered as a country with Brexit because whether you agree with Brexit or not, the concern about what might happen, the kind of everything was a bit up in the air, what was really going to go on. I think that really that kind of lack of confidence really affected the sort of UK PLC. So I think this is here another example. If you've asked businesses to try and meet this target, and I'm sure that some of that groundwork that they've been doing is very difficult and they've been plowing on trying to do the right thing to then be told that the kind of the goal has changed. I can imagine that's incredibly frustrating. Yeah, and I think Matt Illick raised the point in the piece that not everyone perhaps, but most countries are kind of aligned on the idea that we need to reach net zero. So therefore, if British businesses through various skill shortages, whether it's an inability to install enough heat pumps and solar panels, whether it's kind of the fact that those shortages prevent the country from kind of progressing its onshore green energy programme and that affects energy prices and all of that, that that can therefore put a UK PLC at a disadvantage compared to the rest of the world. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I think also it kind of, if you're going to keep changing your mind, then the next target he sets, well, our business is really going to strive as hard to meet it if yeah. they feel like there's a chance it's going to be um, shelved at some point anyway. And I think also this point about, I think the point he makes about this green skilled workforce is interesting again, because again, the charge against a lot of businesses is short term thinking. And it's difficult, particularly with sort of, I guess, CEO tenures being quite short and shortening over the last few years. You know, how do you make sure businesses are thinking long term and setting things up for success, you know, when they're far out of the kind of business and stuff? So I think this is a really quite unique challenge where people really collectively have to care and you know yeah. commit to this yeah and if you're then sort of pairing up with like the policy context I know obviously the timing of Rishi Sunak's announcement has been discussed a lot obviously it comes ahead of 12 or so months ahead of the next election so if you've got to encourage that kind of long-term thinking both on the policy front and also on the business front it's quite a tough challenge when those two things come together yeah particularly when you feel like the politicians are playing games in order to win elections based on green promises so it's a bit more serious than a kind of political football 
on the topic of conservative politicians, then one of the big stories last week was Liz Truss, the former UK Prime Minister, the fact she gave a speech defending her legacy. And to remind our listeners, in case you have forgotten, she unveiled a growth plan during her time as PM that involved £45 billion of annual unfunded tax cuts. This approach led to chaos in the markets. The pound fell to its lowest ever value against the dollar. The Bank of England had to intervene to steady markets. Truss had to sack her chancellor six days after that announcement and herself had to resign after 49 days in the office, which is the shortest of any UK prime minister and shorter than in the shelf life of an iceberg lettuce. So a recent piece in The Economist asked if Britain was still paying a moron risk premium, which was a term coined by Dario Perkins from research firm T.S. Lombard, whether, so whether we're still paying the price for her actions today. So in her speech, she defended her strategy and said she didn't crash the economy, which many had accused her of doing. Antonio, you wrote this piece, so tell us, because it got us thinking whether it was a wise thing yeah. to ever try and defend your legacy as a, a sort of a leader. So what did you find? Yeah, so I think it's sort of fair to say there wasn't a lot of contrition on display with Liz Truss's speech. I think she conceded that she'd been in a rush to make changes, but that was pretty much as far as it went. And it's been sort of variously described as an act of defiance and entirely unrepentant. And then sort of following on from that, obviously, there's been a significant amount of negative reaction. So I think it sort of almost feeds into that Shakespeare quote, methinks the lady doth protest too much, which <laughs> is actually a terrible misquote and probably a horrible departure from the original meaning as well. But it does kind of capture the idea that if someone's sort of overly defensive about something, then that kind of seems to be like an indictment in itself. And treading the line between sounding blaming and also just trying to stand up for yourself is really difficult. So Stefan Williams, who's the co-founder of strategic communications consultancy, Williams Nicholson, says that kind of defending what you've done is almost always seen as self-serving. And similarly, IMD professor Ben Bryant told me that the biggest trap is to think that your legacy isn't part of your ego. If you are going to do this, go with that awareness that that's like how it's going to be seen. I also yeah. think that leaders are not very sympathetic characters in broad kind of media yeah. because people think they're successful, they've made it, they're rich. You know, now they're kind of coming on whining about how they've been hard done by. Yeah. I don't think that ever goes down well with the sort of the general public anyway, and depending on who, you know, it depends on what audience she's sort of targeting with this speech. But um, I think they're already at a disadvantage because there's not much sympathy going around yeah. <laughs> for the kind of winners in life. But Dustin Seal, who's a partner in Hydrogen Struggles London office, did make the point that the CEO role is inherently laden with risk and not many CEOs kind of get to leave on completely their own terms or with a completely unblemished legacy. And so kind of as such, he believes that everyone's like deserving of a second chance of redemption. And quite often speaking out and defending yourself is one of the main avenues to that. Mm, I think that's a really good point that CEOs and leaders deal in risk all the time. And that's sort of part of their job really is to take calculated risks and to you know, weigh those options up. So, uh, and you're right, not all leaders get a chance to leave on their own terms or yeah. to do it in their own way or to leave at exactly the right, the time that they want to. So, yeah, I mean, I think something that Dustin said is that often those who kind of had made serious or public mistakes are actually the ones who can bring the most value to their new roles. So, so it's a balancing act. I think if you are going to do it, then it's always got to be rooted in kind of reality. Like if there's any disjuncture between the truth and what you're saying, then that will always come out. Mm. 
So before we move on to our interview with Dominic Carter, if you like our podcast, you might also like our sister title, Work Magazine's What If podcast. The first episode of their latest series is out now. Each episode explores what would happen if something fundamental changed in the workplace. The latest episode asks, what if you could brainwash staff? Academics discuss the deployment of choice architecture in the workplace, which obviously covers everything from encouraging people to move about more to reminding them to practice better cybersecurity. And it asks, is the application of nudge theory always ethical? And do rapid advances in neurotechnology, or mind reading, complicate the issue? Future topics will include the death of expertise and extreme wealth accumulation. And you can find it on all the usual podcast places. And now on to our interview with Dominic Carter. Welcome to the podcast, Dominic. You were appointed as EVP publisher of The Sun last year. What do you see as the key challenge for the brand currently? The challenges for The Sun are probably the same as the challenges for anyone that's been involved in newspaper publishing and magazine publishing. The uh, disruption from the early noughties caused by the internet and the disaggregation of the bundle has meant that we've had to rapidly evolve our business models. And I think for us, it's sustaining the business that we're in, which is journalism, making sure that we can still get to all the people that want to consume our content, you know, on any platform at any time, however and whenever they want it. And that is a constant evolution. While still managing a print business for which there's a large proportion of the audience that still want it, we also know that increasingly we're moving towards, at an ever-increasing rate, towards a digital future that allows us lots of opportunities. So they're not risks, they're significant opportunities for us to expand to more territories and therefore our reach today is greater than it ever has been and I think our reach in the future will be greater than it is today. And your current post is the latest in a series of senior positions that you've held in the media industry. When did you land your first big role and can you tell me a bit about that? I think every role that you take on you have to imagine it's a big role because it's a step and if it's not a step upwards then it's not a big role. So from right from the day that I joined newspapers some time ago But back in 1991, I'd say that was a big step. I was the first black person to join a national newspaper in the display sales team. And I'm in the position that I'm in now. But every step of that journey has been a big step because it's been a learning curve. I spend my whole life thinking that every day you need to learn something new. If I was to be more specific in answering that question, I think becoming chief commercial officer for um, the commercial function across News UK several years ago now, I think was a huge step because it was a it was a culmination, I guess, of a journey of working on the Times, the Sunday Times, the Sun, Today newspaper, News of the World, as it was, and our publishing business in Australia. It's an accumulation of knowledge and experience and expertise, if you like, that I've gathered over the years that allowed me to take on a role that spanned advertising across all the publications and the radio businesses that we own today. And you mentioned that early on in your career, you were the first person of colour to become a display advertising exec on a national newspaper. What was that experience like? And in your view, how has the media industry changed or not changed in the intervening period? There was two things, really. I, I suppose I've been in magazines for a couple of years before I took the step into national newspapers. I was told by many people, you won't get a job in national newspapers about who you know. Well, to a very broad extent, that was true at that time. I mean, national newspapers never really advertised for staff in display. There was um, an element of nepotism and um, and it probably was a little bit more about who you knew. But I decided one day to write to all the MDs of the national newspapers and I got interviewed by all of them. So it shows that if you keep trying or if you try, and you yeah. try to do a different route, you get the chance. So so how did it 
feel for me an achievement. I'd made the step to do the thing that I, everyone said I wouldn't be able to do. And I'd got into national newspapers. And I'd never really thought too much about my ethnicity at that time. And subsequent to that, I don't think my career journey has been hampered, hindered or accelerated by my ethnicity. I think it's always been about the job that you do and the way you do your job and the way that you connect and work with people around you and collaborate with colleagues and work with teams. So so I think that's always been at the heart of it. And I never at any point in that time when I started felt there was any negativity to me being in that position. However, I would say that the decades on, how you asked the question, how has it changed? Not enough, I think it's fair to say, both on on the business side, I think it's probably grown and changed at a faster rate than it has on the editorial side of the industry. And it's not just about ethnicity, but there are not enough, certainly black journalists. I think increasingly there is ethnicity, but not at the rate that, that is reflective of uh, society. Um, and therefore, I think the changes need to happen quicker as an industry, because I think one of the challenges that we've got is as a societal change, unless you can appreciate and understand where people are coming from, then I'm not sure you can really reflect it in the tone of voice, understanding and knowledge, you know, when you're writing or broadcasting about those people. So from whatever background they have, whether it's whether it's non-university educated, council estate brought up, ethnicity, immigrant, I think if you don't have those voices in your newsrooms, then you don't really reflect the people that are reading or listening or watching. Yeah, that's a good point that it's kind of two halves of the same whole. I know Coverage-wise, there was a survey by Women in Journalism in the wake of the Black Lives Matter protests in 2020 that found that across one week in July that year, there was only one black woman quoted on the front cover of a national newspaper. And I think it's fair to assume in examples like that, that a lack of diversity on the industry side would be an exacerbating factor. Are there other ways through which you seek to maintain diversity in your coverage as well? Or is it something that you think comes naturally from promoting diversity and inclusion within your company? I think everyone's made strides and probably at a faster rate since the murder of George Floyd. I think everyone's made significant strides in a change in language, a better use of language, dropping of things like the acronym of BAME. I think just I know there are many little things and there are many big things. But essentially, I think everyone has started to understand how important language is that comes through the words, through the words on screen in, in, in digital or in print or through broadcast outlet. So I think that's been pretty important to all of us. But we're also very aware that, you know, we need to continue to drive uh, a more diverse workforce. And I think we'll only continue to improve in the areas at a faster rate than, well, hopefully, I'd start to say, than many others in the industry. But I'd like to see the whole industry move faster than it has done. So what work has News UK and The Sun done on this front under your aegis in terms of your own workforce? Well, right if I go back probably five, six years now, we you know developed a strategy and then obviously that accelerated post the murder of George Floyd. Just actually setting targets for the organisation, 50-50-20, which is an equal balance of male-female. So it's the ratio of 50% men, 50% women is what we strive for. 20% of ethnicity is what we strive for at all levels across the organisation. We look for also trying to ensure that we are bringing people in from different backgrounds. So therefore, we've looked at apprentice schemes that we've been running for some years now. The majority or quite a significant proportion in the latest intake, the majority of them have been from ethnic backgrounds. It's not intentional, but it proves that actually if you widen the net, you will find talent 
exists, but not from the traditional places where you would normally search for it. Yeah, I mean, because I spoke to Joe Sadden recently, who's the founder of a social mobility tech startup, um, Zero Gravity, and he kind of made the point that particularly when it comes to diversity of sort of income backgrounds, it can be hard for an employer to tell just from an application that they receive what kind of background that person has come from and what obstacles they've overcome to get to that point. So I guess sort of closing that gap with apprentice schemes and that kind of thing is one way of addressing that. So could you tell me a little bit about your current role and responsibilities? What have been some of the biggest challenges that you've faced so far? So my current role is EVP publisher of the Sun, which essentially means that I run the P&L strategy for the Sun in all forms, digital print, both here in the UK and obviously with having one of the fastest growing news websites in the US as well, that responsibility is there as well. So, so that's my primary function. And look, I, you know, and I think right from where we started the conversation, the evolution, the way that we have to run this business and the agile nature with which we have to do it is a constant challenge, but it's a great challenge because I know that there are more opportunities than there are threats. And I think right from the very start, when I took this role on and, you know, and built the leadership team just over a year ago, the first thing we did was just cut back on things. You know, we were doing too many things. And the problem is when you do too many things, you know, you don't do any of them well. So we try to simplify a strategy and, and, and a way of working, which is build, develop, grow, which is not too confusing, you know, which has allowed us to expand into the US. It's allowed us to think about the diversification of our revenues, which we will see increasingly happen over, over the coming years, you know, and allows us to build into new territories and new areas. And I think with both of those things, whilst also maintaining the thing that is core to our business, which is our, our, our newspaper product, but holding journalism, you know, and then continuing to invest in journalism in the way that we do. So I think the biggest challenge has been in the last 18 months, think about the cost of living. We've all had a cost of living crisis. We've all seen prices rise, inflation is there. Well, it happens in business too. When the cost of newspaper publishing is not something that was immune you know, to significant increases and having to ensure that you're managing your business without damaging your business and still delivering a profit number, you know, that you should be proud of and that we can be proud of in the organization has been, it was a, was an immediate challenge in the role that I, when I took it on last year. And what do you see as the core of the Sun's brand or identity today? My aim in this business is not to change the thing that was created all those years ago. And the heart of the, the Sun is we stand up for those without a voice, you know, we're very comfortable with challenging without fear or favor those in power, you know, and authority. And I think that is a fundamental part of what we do. You know, we stand up for those people that don't have a voice. We ensure that we try to make sure rather that what our readers, you know, are suffering or feeling day in, day out is the thing that we talk about that helps them navigate their life, you know, and their daily lives through the words that, that, that we write, informing them, but keeping them entertained and doing it in a way that only the sun can do is fundamental to our business. And I think the sun acknowledges that it can be a bit of a controversial brand. Is that a reputation that you're proud of? And if so, why is that? I think it's a controversial brand. I mean, it can be. I think today, if I'm honest, I look at society and, you know, and the rise of social media that has an impact where people have voices or feel they have a voice in social the people I care about most are the ones that want to read our, you know, read our business. And there are about 30 million people in the UK, you know, that every month read The Sun in whatever form they choose to read it in. It's the number one title in this country for a reason, that it's liked by more people than, than don't like it. So I care less about those that don't like it, and I care more about those that do. And if we're serving, you know, the people that do like us with what they want, then I think we're doing the right thing. So it's only controversial to those that don't. 
it's not controversial to those that do. They like us for our opinions. They like us for the values. They like us for the way that we stand up for them. And they like us for the news that we give them. And, and I'm very proud of being able to do that. We do a lot of good work in society, both um, representing and celebrating the NHS workers through Who Cares Wins or standing up and galvanizing our communities of readers to go and to form a jabs army to do the COVID injections. You know, we do a lot for a lot of good for a lot of people. So I tend to ignore those that shout and be negative about it. And I tend to worry more about those that like us and getting them to love us even more. Do you ever feel like there are times, I'm thinking, for example, of the column of Jeremy Clarkson, where maybe the tone tipped slightly into an area that you wouldn't want? And how do you feel about that incident in reflection? Look, so I think there's a couple of things, and I, and I, and I get the point you're trying to ask. But ultimately, a newspaper is there to do you know, a number of different things. Yes, of course, we give people the important information that's relevant to their lives and you know, they need to know about, which is the news. You know, we entertain them through various other parts, you know, in terms of the, the light-hearted tape that we have on, on live too. We have a very celebratory tone. But we also have a range of voices and opinions. And I think it's important that you have that. And you should always have a balance of where those opinions are. And some of them, you know, are quite strident. And that's okay. You know, but none of them incite anything negative as far as we're concerned. With specific reference to the Jeremy Clarkson article, that you talk about. I mean, of course, that did cause a lot of complaints to Ipso, and we've dealt with that. And, you know, we both apologised, and so did Jeremy. Of course, we'd rather that hadn't happened and hadn't happened in the way it did. And, you know, but we've dealt with it. We understand that it caused some offence, which, by the way, we didn't get any complaints ourselves from our readers, you know, but Ipso did. So I do understand and appreciate, and therefore I don't, you know, don't think that I could sit here and say that it was the best thing that ever happened to us. I think it caused controversy in that respect, and it didn't meet the expectations of what we would want to be as a brand on that occasion. But, you know, for the most part, Jeremy's been writing us for a lot of years, and it's always done a phenomenal job, and our readers love him. And, and I think maybe the tone on that particular article was um, would have been, if it was today, I don't think it would have, it would have appeared in the way that it did. Um, another sort of moment at which The Sun has come under the spotlight recently was over its reporting of Hugh Edwards. And I know that it defended the journalism in that instance on the basis that it was in the public interest. What does that phrase mean to you? And how do you kind of determine when something's in the public interest and when it's not? I'll give you my personal view is that if you are a member of an institution, you know, whether it be a, a royal family, which is publicly funded, or in this instance, the BBC, which is publicly funded through the license fee, which is, by the way, criminal if you don't pay it, you know, therefore, I, I would suggest that you are in the top echelons of, of that corporation then I think you are in the interest to the public. You know, I don't particularly want to comment too much about that particular person. But ultimately, what I will say is that we're a company and we're a brand in the sun that is equivalent to any other news brand or any other professional curated journalistic business. That means that all of our stories are fact-checked before they appear. It is incredibly important that we make sure that nothing goes on our pages you know, that hasn't been fact-checked and well-sourced. Whose role do you think it is to ask questions across the whole media industry of editorial decisions? Do you think that's the role of government or of media outlets or of someone else? We live in a democracy and I think it's important that, you know, we, you know, we have a free press in this country, you know, unlike many others, you know, and I think that allows us to hold those in power to account. I mean, you can't be in a situation where you're regulated by government you know, when actually they may well be the people that you need to hold to account. So I think you do need to have a body, as we do have, 
there is our regulator, and that is, um, and then look, and the best source of our regulation is the customer, ultimately. But you know, in reality, we have a body, and you know, and it shouldn't be done by government because you know, free press is incredibly important to you know to the democracy that we want to live in and we all enjoy. And how has News UK been responding to the developments around AI? I mean, we've seen the screenwriter strikes in America and across lots of areas of the creative industries. It's been quite a big concern, but that also moves to embrace it too. What are your thoughts about the impact of artificial intelligence on the media sector? I think there's a measure that you could argue there are there are many threats to generative AI and the pace at which it's changing. You know, of course, we should you know we should all remain you know very aware of, of what those are, and that is about having a dialogue. And we're trying to ensure we do ensure that we are having a dialogue. The other side of it is there are equally as many opportunities, I think, and maybe even more so opportunities about what else you could do and how you could use. AI to enhance what we currently do and you know so we we embrace it in fact we log every time we are using AI and we are experimenting constantly and you know we're not not concerned about the threats we're just very aware of them you know but that's a dialogue that we're having. And I guess similarly in terms of for example TikTok I know that you mentioned that how the sort of media landscape has evolved in the last few decades and that broadly you see that as an opportunity do you think that in the future, we're going to be consuming a lot of our news media on TikTok, or is that kind of overblown? <laughs> I think you just have to accept that, you know, there are different generations in the society we live in that choose to consume content in different ways. You know, and if you want to be relevant for the future, then you have to remain on relevant platforms, you know, both now for some generations, which may be in print, for others that may want to consume in, on YouTube, for, for those that want to be on TikTok, or those that just want to be in any other social channel. So, you know, so therefore you have to imagine that you're, you know, the skill that you have is, you know, not just to get the best story, but to make sure that people see it. You know, I don't think that the world is going to be defined by one particular channel. I think it is about um, having a range and making sure you understand all the reasons why you're in them. You know, and some of them will be because it's revenue generative. For others, it is for the generation that's coming, you know, that we want to consume our media. And for others, it's just to make sure that you are remaining relevant to another generation so so i think you, you you just have to know why you're in them but i don't think that the world we're going to see is you know it's going to go one route or another i think it's going to continue to evolve in the way that we've seen it over the last decade or or two and um and i think it just may evolve more rapidly over the next over the next five years you know primarily because of what we just talked about in terms of generative ai what do you make about the whole debate in terms of returning to the office i don't know what the policy is at news uk but what have you been doing at the Sun and what's your view on hybrid working versus being back in person? I think that the best thing to say is that there's two things that you look for is, you know, is, is creativity and productivity in a business, uh, in a business like ours, in a media business. I think teamwork and being together is incredibly important. Water cooler moments, you know, and although it's a bit cliched, are incredibly important and best innovation sometimes comes you know, from those moments. I think innovation is very difficult to happen if you're on your own in a one-bedroom flat trying to innovate. I think it requires conversation. I think teamwork and, and productivity comes from everyone being together. Having said that, I do accept that we're in a different era. It was coming out of COVID, I think, you know, has caused us, you know, or during COVID caused us to realise that you can run a business very differently. And we are doing. We like people to be in this office at least three days a week. We don't mind if people are productive 
and working remotely. And that doesn't always mean working from home because if you're in sales, I'm very happy for you to be out two days seeing clients and then three days in with your team members. But there's a flexibility because we have to have flexibility for a generation of workers that we employ, especially those that are taking us into the next decade of business. Yeah, it's interesting because I guess you can see productivity in different ways. There's sort of bashing through a load of tasks and then there's maybe long-term productivity in terms of what drives the business forward. And quite often you need that creativity element to be strong for those kind of longer term changes. I think you need creativity, but also, look, I mean, to be candid, I think it's very difficult. If you're a new starter in a company or you're fresh out of university into a new job, I think you do need to learn from those around you. And, you know, when you talk earlier on about my career journey and a big first big step, the, the reason I say I constantly learn is because I listen to everybody. I watch people and I you know, and right from the very start, you know, learning, hearing someone else do have a negotiation and, and using a line and thinking, oh, that's a really interesting perspective or uh, negotiation tactic. How would I apply that to me? It's a really important thing. Now, if I'm not sitting next to someone, you know, having that or listening to that, how do I know? How do I become a great negotiator? How do I become really proficient at the job that I need to do to make that next step? I think that's where productivity is formed because it's formed right at the beginning. And it makes you even better, you know, the next year, the year after that, you know, and that's where productivity comes from. So productivity suffers not just necessarily a little bit now, but the productivity over time will suffer without the quality of candidate and the quality of expert expertise that is formed from collaborating and listening and working with people around you. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's generational divide in terms of it as new workers that potentially could suffer the most from too much time spent at home is something that a lot of people have kind of raised with me. How would you sort of characterise your style as a leader? I always try and think, how do I like to be treated? And I try and always put myself in the other person's shoes. I want to encourage people, you know, to come up with ideas. And I like to give them the room to get on with it. You know, I often use the line um, here when I uh, talk to my team about my raison d'etre is to make sure that we're a business that continues to innovate, but that I give them the room to do the best work of their lives in this organization. And that means that you can set them in a direction or show them, you know, a vision of what you would like to see and then encourage. And for me, I lean into the things that I think are new and important, and I lean into the things that are going to be a problem, you know, and the things that the day-to-day I think you just have to let people get on with it. They know what they're doing. They get up every morning to do the best job that they can if you've inspired them in the right way. So my job is to make them feel like they want to do it, you know, to show them where we're going to go. And their job is to tell me how we're going to get there. And what would you say are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned over the course of your career? The biggest lessons for me is that it's okay to be in a minority of one. So you need to challenge other people's thinking. And I think, therefore, having a culture somewhat of disruption and innovation, I think, is pretty important because status quo is just always, in my view, going backwards because others are accelerating if you're not. So, so you've got to constantly innovate and disrupt yourself, you know, to be the best that you can be as, as, a, as an organization. So I think that lesson I've seen where businesses have failed over the time, and it's because they haven't evolved enough, they haven't been brave enough. They haven't taken risks and moderated them. They haven't been agile enough in the way they've developed products and portfolios. So I think I want to make sure that we continue to do that. And I think I've taken that all the way through my career, both on a personal level and now in the in the jobs as my teams have got bigger and bigger. 
um, trying to ensure that we're doing that as an organisation. Brilliant. Well, that feels like a good place to leave it. Thank you so much, Dominic. It's been great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for listening to Management Today's Leadership Lessons podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe. We're available on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts.